Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. So here's a sad fact. I first had the idea for this episode the day after the tragic Parkland, Florida school shooting on February 14th, 2018. My own way maybe of dealing with a sense of helplessness over it all. Perhaps wanting to feel like I could at least offer something to the conversation. At that time, I was still in the initial planning phases of this podcast and knew it would be a while before it was launched. So here's the sad part. I actually thought to myself, well, whenever I get around to releasing this episode, it's still going to be relevant. In fact, chances are there will have been a mass shooting on American soil within a few days of literally any day I choose to release it. And of course, it's true. As of today, June 17th, there have been 148 mass shootings in the United States in 2019 alone and an average of one school shooting every 12 days since Parkland. Americans commemorated the 75th anniversary of D-Day on June 6th, and that day it was circling around the newswires that by March 6th, more Americans had died in gun violence in 2019 than died on D-Day. So I'm fully aware of all of the political arguments around gun control, There are numerous political commentators who can say a lot more from the legal and constitutional perspective on this topic. They can talk about legislation and the obstacles to passing it and the ongoing politics of the debate. That's not what I want to talk about. I want to approach this from more of a yogic and mythic perspective and talk about something else, freedom and what it really means. In the classic movie The Princess Bride, the character Vizzini keeps using the word inconceivable over and over again until finally fan favorite Inigo Montoya says to him, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Freedom, I do not think it means what you think it means. Let's start with that. The yoga of gun control, the grail myth, and the healing of the American wound. Perspectives on Freedom, Empathy, and Responsibility, today on The Emerald. The biggest argument against gun control legislation has, of course, to do with the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and the individual right to bear arms. Within this, a certain segment of the population sees it as a deep infringement on personal freedom to, you know, be asked for a background check before buying a piece of military-grade hardware that can take out a hundred people in a minute. Regardless of your views on that, one word keeps coming back into play in these discussions, freedom, 
Freedom, in the American understanding, has meant the unfettered ability to do whatever we want whenever we want, free of government interference or regulation, to grow our businesses, expand our holdings, work our land, drink our big gulps, drive our trucks, grow our corn. If I want to own 95 cars, I can own 95 cars. If I want to add nacho cheese flavoring to Mountain Dew, even if to do so violates all the laws of nature and common sense, then I am free to create that unholy love child deep in the bowels of some stoner snack food laboratory. And by the way, nacho cheese soda is real. Go look it up. And if I want an arsenal of guns, no one's going to tell me that I can't have that arsenal of guns. Nowhere do the advocates of this type of freedom get more territorial than with their weaponry. It seems that in America, when we speak of freedom, what we really want above all else is the freedom to be armed to the teeth. So today I want to contrast this with the yogic view of freedom. Because in the yogic view of freedom, almost nothing could be more opposite of freedom than to be imprisoned in a mindset that sees freedom in terms of a right to accumulate weaponry. view is pretty simple. The mind in its unrefined state is anything but free. If left unharnessed or untrained or unilluminated, the mind will spend a lifetime or more following its every impulse, bound to whims and addictive cravings and neuroses. Mind wants a new car. Mind wants a new job. Mind wants nacho cheese soda. The very premise of the modern capitalist system is based on fulfilling each and every indulgence or whim or craving of the mind, as is evidenced in the relentless barrage of advertising we are subjected to daily, which assails us with an incessant mantra. We are not okay the way we are. We need more stuff to make us happy, and our want and ability to procure that stuff is, in fact, freedom. This, for the yogi, is the opposite of freedom. To be so bound to immediate whims and impulses to stake our well-being and happiness on the shifting tides of economies and soda brands and models of guns and cars is the human being in its most fettered state. Freedom, for the yogi, comes from recognizing that external circumstances are not ultimately what makes a person free. And don't get me wrong, external freedom is important. I value enshrined individual freedoms as described in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I know very well that there are societies in which greater individual freedoms are necessary, like for the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and the native peoples of this continent and the people of color here who suffer within systemic racism and oppression. What I'm speaking of is freedom within, because ultimately when all is said and done, and we can't get that next shiny object, and the bodega has run out of nacho cheese soda, and Dick's Sporting Goods stops selling assault rifles, the question is, are we going to be miserable? Are we going to be thrown off of our axis? Are we going to bemoan the universe or doubt its providence? Ultimately, within each of us, there has to be some foundation of what has been called for a very long time 
inner peace. A center point to our being, something that we orbit that lives beyond the shifting tides of externals. Why? Because, as David Foster Wallace says, everyone worships something. And if what we choose to worship is money or handbags or power or a freedom that is dependent on our right to accumulate high-powered weaponry, then that thing, as Wallace says, may end up eating us alive. Here's the thing about inner peace and weaponry. It's pretty difficult to have one with the other. All the hyped-up visions of the warrior-scholar, the samurai who serenely dispatches dozens of foes while composing calligraphy, is just that, hype. The reality of samurai culture, for instance, was brutal, and samurais were notoriously paranoid and incessantly violent, just as the reality is that the consciousness of those who have had to take others' lives in combat is rarely the same again. Weaponry is not good friends with inner peace. And inner peace, if the yogis are to be believed, is the foundation of freedom. You see, weaponry assumes an enemy. An enemy that, more likely than not in this day and age, doesn't actually exist. We live in the age of ideological enemies, self-manufactured threats. An enemy that is so ephemeral that it takes a relentless 24-hour fear-mongering news cycle to create it. That news cycle is sure good for gun sales, though. It would have you believe that the whole world is full of people that want to get you. Or even worse, a faceless government that wants to come and take your guns and therefore your freedom. And the mind latches on to that. The mind becomes energetically armed. Anxious, nervous, like an addict jonesing for a fix. And what's going to fix that, Jones? More weaponry. So when people say, I'm much more calm or secure with my gun, well, yogic philosophy would probably question that. It would probably say that no external object, particularly one designed for the express purpose of harm, can bring us a calm that ultimately has to come from equilibrium on the inside. In many of the traditions of yoga, the first vow that practitioners take is that of ahimsa, or nonviolence. There are layers of reasons for this. Compassion, empathy, love for fellow beings are all good reasons to uphold nonviolence. The understanding that, as Dr. King said, ultimately hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. But there's a finer reason, too, within the consciousness of the practitioner peace of mind, the state necessary as a foundation to experience kaivalya, freedom, the freedom of the consciousness to explore all the depths and heights of the frequency called love, the freedom of the individual to not be bound to the cycle of their immediate whims and cravings, that peace of mind is a whole lot more difficult to feel when the mind is in a state of psychic armament, which is why in this polarized day and age, there's a whole lot of anxiety going around. Even those who aren't packing seem armed. There's a whole lot of anxiousness. If you've been traveling abroad, you can feel it the moment you set foot back on American soil, a culture of anxiousness. Some are getting paid millions of dollars to foster this anxiousness. And that anxiousness then drives people out to buy more weapons, and the weapons create more anxiousness. And then social media becomes a vehicle to share that which we are most agitated about, 
and that creates more agitation. So from the yogic perspective, agitation is many things within the consciousness, but it's certainly not freedom. Buying guns and preparing oneself for the end times or the invasion of some other or the perceived threat is definitely not freedom. Guns and ammo might be selling something, but it's hard to identify that something as freedom. So ultimately, if what you're looking for is freedom, and you're trying to find it through buying guns, you may be looking in the wrong direction. Some might say these are the times that we live in. They require a certain degree of psychic armament. They require action. And certainly these are times that call for action. They are also times that require a continued voice in favor of the place of peace and center and calm. One of the editorials I read after the latest round of mass shootings, in which kids in two different instances were compelled to take it on themselves to confront the gunman, said that we're putting too much on our children. We're robbing them of the space to just be kids. We are. And in feeding a constant discourse of polarization and agitation, we are also robbing ourselves of the value of the space of calm. In a polarized and combative age, an age when, yes, action is necessary, the call to continue to cultivate access to the peaceful mind and heart is also necessary. Perhaps this more than anything is the place of the unarmed yogi. I want to talk a little bit more about weapons and wounds from a mythic perspective. The old stories are full of weapons, of course, both because people have had weapons for a very long time, and also because the myths are about a struggle for union or wholeness, and the weapon epitomizes the hero's aid in that struggle. In these stories, the really powerful weapons, the semi-automatics of their day, always came with terms. For example, there are many Indian myths about divine weapons, weapons that would make a modern sci-fi or fantasy fan drool, astras that could destroy entire solar systems or bring thunderstorms of arrows, weapons made of water and fire and light, weapons of the mind shot from the bow of the brow. Warriors seeking access to these weapons would undergo a series of trials. Usually, they would go to a remote hilltop and practice yoga for 10,000 years or so, and then, thanks to the spiritual power generated by the depth of their practice, the weapon would be granted to them. They proved their worthiness and also demonstrated a level of psychic readiness to handle the responsibility of having a weapon. In the Arthurian legend of Excalibur, we encounter probably the ultimate background check. Only the one who is worthy can draw the sword from the stone. Point is, there was always in these stories a sense of worthiness and responsibility when it comes to weapons, a little different than the God and Sam Colt made all men equal vision of weapons for all, weapons all the time, weapons at Walmart. The Arthurian legend is particularly interesting in this regard because the responsibility of the weapon bearer is ultimately to nature. 
and the measure of worthiness ultimately comes from nature. To draw a sword from stone is to draw rulership from within the laws of nature. The one who is worthy is ultimately the one who is able to govern in a way in which nature prospers. The Arthurian legends arose at a time when nature-based paganism was giving way to Christianity, and the implications of a world in which nature was already being subjugated and bent to man's will as a result of Catholic theology weighed heavily on the minds of the bards who synthesized these tales and legends. So the Arthurian tales are infused with reflections on what it means to be worthy and also what it means to be in alignment with nature. There's no greater example of this than the Grail legend, which, with all the myriad interpretations these days, and da Vinci codes and whatnot, it's easy to lose sight of its simplicity. Here it is, or part of it anyway. The land has become a wasteland. The crops are failing. The water has dried up. Swamps are festering. Barrenness abounds both in the fields and in the wombs of women. All of this is because the Grail King, the one who keeps this holy object, sometimes a cup, sometimes a bowl, sometimes a flat stone that gushes with inexhaustible streams of pure, clear water, has suffered a deep wound to his thigh. This wound has effectively emasculated him, and since the king and the land are one, when the king loses this primal connection to fertility, so does the land. The natural cycle is disrupted. Along comes Percival, Parsival, to pierce the vale or the valley. Percival is kind of a carefree young knight and has been raised specifically outside of the court so that he won't be spoiled by politics and courtly life. In this way, he's a lot like America at its inception, young, brash, with a go-get-em mentality and an eagerness that benefits him in the beginning. But Percival dreams of big things, and along the way he starts to learn that you've got to play by the rules. So he gets instructed in what it means to be a knight, and one of the instructions is that you don't ask unnecessary questions or questions that would be inappropriate to the existing social order. Well, one day Percival encounters the Grail King, who is sometimes called the Fisher King, on a lake beneath a castle. And he knows nothing of the Grail that is in the castle, or the story of the King, or the reason for the spell of barrenness that is on the land. He simply sees the King's wound and it moves him. And he wants to ask, what happened? How did you get this wound? but he remembers that knights aren't supposed to ask unnecessary questions, and he goes on. It turns out that the asking of that simple question, the empathetic, compassionate question, what happened, what ails you, uncle, how did you get this wound, is exactly what would have healed the king and restored the land and given him access to the grail. But because Percival stopped trusting his intuition and went instead by the rules of an imposed social order increasingly separated from nature, he failed. He has to spend five more years and endure a whole lot of suffering before he comes back, asks the right question, and gains the grail.
so this story has a lot to say today. The society is separated from nature. The king is wounded and the land is barren. Sound familiar? The American wound, if we were to pinpoint it, would certainly be a lack of empathy. This lack of empathy is exacerbated by a culture that seems increasingly pitted against itself, that offers its citizens no real societal safety net, that says resoundingly, you're on your own, that idolizes and forwards an every-man-for-himself mentality that is the antithesis of empathy and could probably drive the lost, the down-and-out, the socially marginalized, to want to take up arms, to feel like the only freedom they have left is to take up arms. Shootings are perhaps ultimately a cry for empathy, a last statement of, well, if I can't be part of something, then neither can you. Our political candidates, our modern-day knights, our wannabe grail kings, exist within a system that has grown so divorced from nature and so structurally bent on maintaining the status quo, a status quo that requires the perpetuating of a deep and painful wound, that very few are willing to plunge right into the heart of the wound and ask the real question, what happened? How did we get to this place? Children dying, active shooter drills, how did we get here? The Grail legend tells us that what ultimately makes a worthy leader, at a time when the land is barren and people live disassociated from nature and leadership is wounded, is someone who is willing to pause with empathy and compassion and ask this question, what is the source of the wound? The wound that is the gulf between rich and poor, the wound that separates the two warring parties, the divide that has us fuming at one another on the internet, the wound that is our addictive relationship with consumption, the wound that makes people feel that they have no other choice but to arm themselves, the wound that causes people to open fire, the wound that if untreated wounds others, but if passed through with compassion becomes the very source of our healing. Some direct talk to the Democrats now. If you can't summon the courage to walk right into the wound with true empathy and ask the right questions and listen and formulate the right answers, then, as the story says, more years of suffering and wandering. It's also worth noting how the king got the wound, and this is really interesting. He got the wound from being too freewheeling, not paying enough attention to knightly order, charging off into battle in a huff, screaming, Amor! So on the one hand, you have the king who fails because he's not restrained enough, and then you have Percival who initially fails because he's too restrained, and in the middle is the balance. And this balance of restraint and freedom is exactly the balance sought by the yogi. It's the balance sought in the breath practice, pranayama, which means, depending on where you put the emphasis, either restraint of the breath or freedom of the breath. It's the balance of being alert in practice and yet also relaxed. It's the balance of the stone and the water that is the grail itself. On a macro level, it is the balance between regulations that govern a society and the freedom to do as we wish within that society. And this is a fundamental and necessary balance. The idea that a society could be all free, 
all nacho-flavored soda and automatic weapons and gas-guzzling trucks and no governance is ridiculous. Defined structure is an integral part of nature. Regulation is what makes for good, harmonious music. The alternative, the free-for-all, is like the worst drum circle you've ever been to. Regulation keeps companies from dumping sludge in rivers. Regulation questions whether everyone on the planet, I mean everyone, is really worthy of wielding an automatic weapon. Percival finally follows the middle path and pierces the center, as his name implies, showing himself worthy to be the keeper of the grail. It is a combination of things that establishes him as worthy, the balance of knightly responsibility with his own deep intuition and his attunement to nature. His entire mission is the restoration of ecological wholeness. In the story, he follows his horse, they say, a way perhaps of saying that he follows his intuition, his breath, his heart. The role of nature is vital here. There is an innate theme in the Grail legend that a return to nature, to the state of the king before he became wounded, the land before it became a wasteland, the wholeness of the mind before it became fractured, is what we are all seeking. I certainly can't help but feel that repair of our relationship with nature relates to all of the ills that plague modern society. When we watch politicians sit in an office in D.C. and condemn millions of acres of national forests to mining interests with a single pen stroke, forests that they've never visited, whose airs they've never breathed, we can see the wounded king and the wasteland in action. When we see news of the latest shooting, the word that first comes to mind is broken, societally broken. I'm not going to presume to suggest a cure for the societal ill of the mass shooter, but I will say that if the Grail legend is to be believed, wholeness is restored through empathy, compassion, an unflinching addressing of the truth of the ills that we face, and a healing of our relationship with nature. Is it a coincidence that these shootings tend to happen in our most unnatural, our most institutionalized of spaces? The school, the military base, the office, the post office. Spaces that are divorced of natural form and devoid of the empathetic connection that shared time and nature brings. These shootings aren't happening in meadows by streams or in circles by the fire. They're happening in square rooms and sterile hallways beneath fluorescent lights. Spaces that breed a lack of empathy. Perhaps we need to think deeper into how our communal spaces align with nature and how we align with each other within those spaces. To do so takes a nature-first rather than a progress-first mentality. I, for one, would like to see a leader who actually understood as much about nature as they do about modern-day capitalism. and often quoted scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Michael Palin tells us that supreme executive power has to come from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. But what do we do when we've reached a point when the masses don't know what Brexit is when they vote for it, or the masses equate freedom with their right to drink nacho cheese soda and be armed to the teeth? 
And what if aquatic ceremonies, or at least time spent immersed in nature, bestow a greater sense of empathy and responsibility upon a person that allows them to govern well? The point is, there needs to be a balance, a balance that honors our precious freedoms while upholding a societal contract of necessary responsibilities and regulations, all in alignment to nature. No one is suggesting that we abolish weaponry. Governance, personal and societal, requires some level of defense. No one's questioning this. However, the true drive for this, if the Grail legend is to be believed, must be a little less because I get to do whatever I want and a little more based on empathy and responsibility, on the love that flows like a rain of endless clear water. In future episodes, I'm going to explore this balance of restraint and freedom more in what can only be seen as an obvious quest to piss off libertarians, and much more on the yogic implications of the grail story for the individual practitioner, coming up on a future episode of The Emerald. This episode references several books, movies, and stories. Parzival by Wolfram von Eschenbach, The Romance of the Grail by Joseph Campbell, and of course, two of the best films ever made, The Princess Bride and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.